Hello, and welcome to the first ever podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize security, optimize performance. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. Also brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now for the stories of the week. So we're going to start off the segment talking about what everyone's talking about everywhere. On Twitter, on Facebook, on MySpace. Oh, wait. MySpace is no longer around. <laughs> but either way, we're hearing it on all the social media channels. About um, the iCloud hack. Am I safe having my stuff in iCloud? What do you think, Matt? Are we safe? Uh, I think nothing's safe. <laughs> nothing's safe anymore, especially when you're hosting it in a cloud environment. Um, basically, upon looking into what happened, the attackers uh, kind of guessed the email address uh, for the Apple ID, uh, and they got that through some of the other, like either through Find My iPhone or through forgetting um, a password, right through iTunes. Uh, either way, the attackers ended up obtaining um, the celebs, uh, their email addresses, and started brute forcing. So hold on, wait a minute. How did they get their information to do um, brute force stuff? What, did they socially engineer them? So the, I, the I website, so the website, the next web, after the publication of the photos, uh, revealed the existence of code for hacking uh, of iCloud services. Uh, and it was posted on an open source website, GitHub, as we all know. A lot of great tools on there right, and stuff yep. like that. Um, but the application exploits a vulnerability that has already been fixed by Apple. They stepped up to the plate uh, in the Apple Find My iPhone service to guess passwords with unlimited attempts without being locked out. So basically, if you lose your phone and you log in from a, a computer and you're trying to recover your phone, you can use this Find My iPhone application. Yep, I've actually tested that and used that myself. So you can beacon out, like if it's, right. you know, if, if somebody has the phone, uh, and you can basically guess passwords in an unlimited fashion. Uh, there's no lockout mechanism. There's no security controls enabled for the lockout feature. And they're able to, to guess as many passwords as possible. Either way, they found out the password. They got into the account uh, through brute force, which, as you know, takes a lot of time. It's a little bit better than than cracking a password off-site, in my opinion, if you and, don't have the horsepower. And there's some tools out there that help them do that as well. That help them do that as well. We're not going to name drop them in this, in this podcast. Maybe we'll post them in the show notes. But either way, they, they got the password. They started getting on to uh, the backup feature. Apple declared that the iCloud backups are encrypted. However, if you set up a host computer and mirror... A legitimate account, you can then pull down the backup to the local system. And I think yeah. that's what the attackers did in this case. And in that, they were able to see the JPEGs, the photos that were on the iPhones of these celebs. And they were able to use that, uh, you know, and post them on, on websites. Some websites blur stuff out, you know, from what I've heard secondhand. I haven't actually looked at these photos. Who knows? This is a bad thing that happened in the industry. However, Apple stock hasn't taken a hit. That's uh, true. And they're about to release the uh, iPhone 6 that we'll talk about in the next segment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that'll be pretty exciting. But that's my thing. Um, how to secure your iCloud, what we can do. Let's, if you want 100% protection, stay off the internet, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's never going to happen. But if you yourself are at risk of this breach, if, if, if Bruce Force was indeed used, basically you need to have password complexity. Um, we'll 
post some things in the show notes. Uh, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, what can I do? I need a definitive list. But we can do a password manager, right? But then you have, you can just hit the password manager and now I have all your passwords for all of your accounts. But in this case, the celeb should have used a very either long or complex password to prevent the, the brute force from happening. So I'm assuming, Matt, that they were using simple words or things that they would remember that were really easy or really short because you as well as I know when you use your iTunes account it asks for your password to buy it so it's really easy when you're doing anything in the app store if you're doing anything on the iPhone it's going to come up with the prompt there's no way for you to just say hey forget it I think on the iPhone 5s they actually have the fingerprint verification where you can use your fingerprint um, instead of a password but initially you have to set the password up So, um, you know, you kind of set it and forget it in that stage and forget that it's a weak password. Maybe you set it in the store when you were getting the phone and things like that. However, what the attackers used, in my opinion, um, to to compute the passwords were basically from all of the breaches that we've seen, the Adobe breach, the Sony breach, and, you know, you know, there's word lists that are compiled within Backtrack and Cali and some other things. Uh, They had a huge... uh, a huge list to source off of in order to brute force this. Uh, well over three, five, ten million um, things that they could guess. And then you can XOR that, right? You can throw things into it. You can kind of, um, you know, uh, throw characters in at some point, maybe even throw that into your brute force. So who knows? But they, they definitely had some process that they used and it was successful because they pulled all this off. So the tool, the tool that they used to do this hack, I heard that. It was either open source or um, law enforcement uses the tool. Um, how do you think they were able to get the tool, and how do you think uh, people can mitigate that? So, I think that we'll need an you know some company to perform some type of evaluation on what actually occurred. I don't think we're going to actually get information out of Apple. Um, as far as what actually occurred, I think that this is right near the release of their new product, the iPhone 6, which you know we'll talk about in the next tech, uh, tech segment. But I, I don't think they're going to come out and basically say, this is what happened. So as far as the tools that they used, open source or you know a law enforcement tool or something like that, that could have been a chain thing. They could have pulled it off of a previous breach and used that. That could be, you know, you never know. It could be on the dark web, ooh, right, as we call it, or something like that. But either way, they used the tool. Um, they were able to, to brute force this, which is kind of an elementary way of gaining access, uh, unauthorized access to an account. And they were very successful because uh, they were able to pull this information off and, you know, use it. So it's out there. But um, kind of caution here. A lot of the things circulating, you know, you got to be very careful. I would tell people not to click the links, not to look at this. This could be used in phishing attempts in the future. You never know. Um, all of the files that are out there now, you don't know the integrity of those files. I don't care if it's on 4chan, if it's wherever. Um, be sure that you do not click on these things just because they could be Trojanized or there could be something going along with it. Um, as much as you know, the allure is there, uh, again, attackers basically want users to click on these types of things. So Absolutely. Be careful out there. On There's the a lot of money involved in that. Yes. So, Matt, speaking of money and iCloud, I know that when you go over a certain amount for your iCloud account, it starts charging you. Five think, gigs to be exact. Yeah, five gigs. So that's another thing. Um, with any cloud service, I mean, whether it be Google with Android or um, Apple with the iPhone, they give you a certain amount and then you have to pay per use after that certain amount. And that amount right now is um, is five gigs. So once you go over that, there's a certain dollar amount, which is, you know, which can fluctuate based upon how much you use in that iCloud storage. Again, their models start at four gigs yeah. and go on up. So for the four gig user, that's going to be perfect. However, you have a 16 gig or a 32 gig iPhone, which, you know, these, I bet you these celebrities probably live on their iPhone. So they probably have a high uh, gigabit or high capacity iPhone. You're going to be paying for that additional use. For the general user, they're not going to opt to pay in for that. 
they're going to back up, you know, maybe their contacts or maybe their notes that are on the phone. They're not going to back up the, the data, which would be the videos and the photos. So that's another thing to keep in mind when going forward with this. Uh, again, it's a pay-per-use model. So I think the scope of individuals that are affected by this is kind of smaller, but that's something that's enabled by default from the vendor. So again, most of the people listening to this podcast, you're going to have everything squared away. You're going to have everything secure. However, your mother, your grandmother, right, your significant other. And everybody else. Everybody else. They're not going to have the same mindset, same frame of reference when going forward and securing these devices. So with the Internet of Things, we have to be sure that we're looking and, and paying attention to what we're accepting from the vendor. And always remember to tell everybody to use the complex passwords um, so it can help them out in the future. Absolutely. All right, what's our next topic? Next topic, it's a funny one, is, uh, well, it's not really funny, but um, it's unfortunate. Stanford University, their website was hacked. Um, oh, this is from that um, <laughs> Indian hacker, right? Sahu. Yes, Sahu. So basically, the attack anatomy is unknown. The hacker successfully uh, got onto the server and uploaded a defacement page. It was kind of buried deep um, from the top-level domain. But uh, the domain basically, or the message basically said, got owned, shocked, and you know gave him attribution to what actually occurred. Uh, two sites were hacked from the top-level domain. It was pretty interesting. Um, there again, Stanford, as of right now, let's see if they fixed it. Yeah. So, no, it's still up there. Yep. So, my uh, antivirus caught it as web defacement, which is pretty interesting. And it's blocking me from going there. But it's still out there, and it's still active. Again, how Stanford's going to handle this, how their shirt's going to handle this is going to be very interesting to see, but it was it was pretty interesting seeing this in the news. So what did he put on the page there? Uh, basically, the page said... It says, hacked by Sahu, and uh, it says Stanford University got owned, shocked, and uh, it has some, some just general defacement, and then it also has some music. basic uh, techno stuff but uh, either way what's interesting by this or by this defacement is uh, it's by a major university and um, it's been a couple of days now since it's been reported on on our channels um, through the hackerspost.com and nobody is doing anything over at Stanford so it's, it's pretty interesting seeing what's happening and uh, who knows what's gonna happen so why haven't they taken it down I don't know. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting at this stage. Uh, there's nothing showing through regular channels that uh, Stanford University has officially acknowledged the issue. I don't know when it's going to get fixed, but this is just another, this is kind of another uh, example of something getting taken advantage of and compromised. This could have been a jumping point or a watering hole attack. Uh, we're going to kind of talk about that in a, uh, another part of the segment, but there could have been something behind that. There could have been a Trojan. Um, there could have been an iframe injection, cross-site scripting. So the, the website was vulnerable in some way, shape, or form through the web development phase. He found it, and he took advantage of it. Absolutely. And some people are taking advantage of something else, which brings us into our next uh, tech segment of hacking traffic light systems. So... I went to DEF CON 22 this year. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we may do a successive podcast on just a brief overview of how to survive a conference, right? Going out there, getting the most from the conference, um, and being able to come back to the organization and use the information that you got from the conference in a productive manner. But that's for another, another time. But another interesting thing at DEF CON was they presented on hacking traffic light systems. So... Wi-Fi is currently being used in with an access point that's attached and they have wireless sensors in the ground that sense cars and the signals are sent wirelessly to all of those devices as well as to a SNAPS manager, traveler information, all sorts of things. Coordinated traffic signal systems provide a great benefit, but they're 
interconnection and lack of sufficient security is really making it very vulnerable. So that's a lot of information going over um, uh, the wireless frequency. Is it encrypted? Is it in the clear? So prior to the presentation at DEF CON, um, the presenter stated that it was open, everything was open, it wasn't really an issue. He had some dialogue with the state and county government to make it a little bit better and report the vulnerability, but no actions were taken. Directly before, I mean, like 45 minutes before the presentation, they decided to turn on WEP. Um, you just don't turn on WEP overnight. There may have been some planning in, in place, but you know they need to mature to a WPA2 and as we know, there are multiple tools out there that can break web by just capturing the initialization vectors, things like that. I won't go over that here. That's kind of a separate discussion. But either way, we all see in the movies, right, how hackers can control the lights, uh, the, str the street lights, not only to make the roads dark, but the traffic signals to make everything red or everything green when oh, they're trying yeah. to go down the, the street. Oh, yeah, at the same time, it looks so cool in the movies. Yeah, so this is... A realistic thing. I mean, something out of the movie scenes we can actually see being exploited in, in real life. Uh, the, the tactile sensors, the pressure sensors that are in the street, um, the lights themselves, uh, the control signals that they receive through their traffic controller, that can all be exploited. So, you know, mitigations have been... <laughs> Big Tech did that. <laughs> Remember, folks... You have to turn off the cell phone while we're recording. Isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Vic Tech. So Vic Tech's in the house here tonight, and um, that's gonna—he's gonna be up in our um, our next segment coming up after this. But back to the um, back the, to the what lights. we were talking about, right? So uh, the mitigations are out there. The vendor just has to take that into account and apply it. The researchers had suggested that manufacturers and oper and operators improve the security of the traffic light systems by adopting encrypted communications between the components of the infrastructure, which is a check. They're doing that, right, in a very kind of elementary way, but it's a step in the right direction. Digitally signing the firmware on each component and then to avoid the software modifications and then not using default credentials because they, too, were just like the iCloud hack with using weak default credentials. Such as public yeah, such as public, public. You don't, you don't want to do that. That's awesome. So, um, <clears throat> you obviously went out to uh, DefCon, and I couldn't attend because um, one of our clients needed some um, incidents response. Um, but the IR capability exactly. in the house. You so picked the, up. You picked up because I couldn't be there. So the <laughs> guy that um, uh, put this presentation on. Um, did he say why he did it? Was he just bored or did he get a traffic ticket and he was just pissed off or what? Just like any other security researcher, we're security researchers here. Um, you know, anything that you see wrong with society, basically hacking is making, right? So if you see something, you want to make it better. That's what they were trying to do in this case. They were making it better. They kind of wondered about the protocol. That's awesome. Um, and, and they wanted it to happen. Another cool presentation we're not talking about here, but is definitely pertinent to the Internet of Things, um, was the other presentation that a re other researcher gave where he was able to control uh, in a hotel all of the blinds, lights, TVs, ordering in the rooms. That's all centrally connected with default credentials as well. So that sounds very skate-ish. Yeah. Skata-ish, I should say. Skata-ish, absolutely. Um, so maybe here in the future, maybe in the next uh, podcast, we'll kind of talk about some Skata-related uh, things as well. Maybe but bring a SCADA expert on that we might know. Yeah, we might know. We can't confirm or deny, but we might know. So yeah, that would definitely be very cool. So, so all right. So, uh, next topic: watering hole attack. Yeah. So, Alien Vault, uh, very good company. They put out a lot of cool stuff. Um, they discovered watering hole attacks using Scanbox for reconnaissance. So this is very interesting. Basically, the uh, watering hole attack had a singular characteristics. They used a framework developed for reconnaissance as a primary infection vector, and the attackers deployed malicious JavaScript on the targeted websites, but the attack delivers a framework called Scanbox instead of malware, and the application simply collects data from the host and sends it to the command and control server, and it's able to detect the applications run on the targeted machine 
and information that can be used for uh, later by an attacker or serve specific exploits can be used. Scanbox, they you know has numerous uh, plugins that could be used to enumerate software installed in the system, like Flash versions, uh, things like that. Scanbox also includes a keylogging capability, where visitors that browse the compromised websites, all their keystrokes, all of the things, right? They're being recorded and sent to a command and control server periodically, and uh, the IP address that is hosting the CC server was out of Hong Kong. Whoa. So that was pretty interesting. Um, the agent from Alien Vault, or the agent that was put out as part of the exploit or the scan box piece was uh, also collecting the data that the user submits via web forms and allows the attacker to steal sensitive data like uh, passwords and things like that. So the uh, we now we have to talk about the mitigation of it. The experts at Alien Vault suggested that administrators monitor traffic from uh, mail.webmailgoogle, all one word, .com, and js.webmail.google.com because those are the uh, indicators of compromise for this particular attack. But it, it's very interesting, right? It's something out of the box, something that you know you wouldn't think would be nefarious on the network or you know when users are navigating to a web page, but boom, it's there. Um, and some of the scanners, vulnerability scanners out there may not be able to pick this up as part right of right away yeah yeah you know as, as um, part of a compliance piece. So it's definitely something to keep your eye on. So is Scanbox the name of the company? Is it the name of the software? So so that's pretty interesting. Um, Scanbox is just what the attackers refer to this JavaScript as in their code. Oh, okay. So um, the JavaScript file is a framework for reconnaissance that the attackers obviously called Scanbox, and it includes some of the techniques that were described in a um, previous blog post by AlienVault that basically outlined how attackers were abusing Internet Explorer to enumerate software and detect security products. So it, the Scanbox framework basically configures that CNC server, and then it collects a small amount of information to evade detection. Um, but it's definitely something to look out for on your networks, and we'll post some of that pertinent information uh, in the show notes so that you can protect your enterprise. Definitely, and yeah. that's really, really sneaky. Um, here's something else that's really, really sneaky. Fake cell phone towers. Have you guys seen these around? Yeah, so there there was a report put out by CryptoPhone 500, and that's a company that sells secure handsets. And after an executive noticed his mobile device was leaking data, they kind of looked into it. They also provide a hardened Android OS, and they claim that the Android is free from hundreds of flaws which affect uh, the commercial releases. Wow. So basically they have something called a baseband firewall, and after their investigation, the data leaks were traced to cell phone towers. Um, They revealed that they also implement interception features with the possibility to inoculate uh, malware in a wide range of connected mobile devices, and... You know, the mobile devices that we have now that we use every day can't detect the malicious activity. They can only do so much. Uh, and when a software provider is putting out an operating system, you have to look at the gamut of devices that you have out there with the compute power, the RAM, um, the processor power. So you, you can't have it do a million things. You can't have it be a Swiss Army knife. So, and uh, hardened handsets implement a baseband attack detection. And the baseband attack detections allows you to protect through a firewalling mechanism the cell phone against over-the-air attacks. So how are these being found other than this uh, one guy? So Um, do people just go up and install these without anyone looking? I mean, how does that happen? How do you put a fake cell phone tower So at DEF CON 22, um, it was great because a group of security researchers from HP, I believe, gave a presentation on um, cell phone GSM interdiction, right? So they wanted to create a device that they could do uh, man-in-the-middle on GSM, and uh, they were able to do it. Previously, cell phone towers, if you wanted a mini-cell, was about, you know, you can have something less than $100,000, but it's going to be up near a hundred grand for you to have a mini-cell. Now you can do it for about $3,000. But... These cell phone towers that were put up 
was uh, the interceptors, as they're calling them, um, were put up close to military bases and things like that. So there's kind of some speculation in there. Um, maybe it's government funded or something like that. But either way, it's uh, you know it could be used by cyber criminals or foreign intelligence services. Who knows? The FCC, however, has uh, on August 11th announced an investigation into the use of uh, interceptors to spy on Americans by foreign intelligence service and cyber criminals. So hopefully, this is in the scope of that investigation. Excellent, excellent. So FCC. So uh, breaking news here. Basically, uh, Trent Micro they uncovered a number of social engineering attacks based on the celebrity photos that we reported on earlier. Uh, this has happened while we're um, recording here, and basically the um, it calls ADW underscore Brant All and an adware installer uh, targets Windows Seven and earlier versions. Um, when we click on those links and they're spear phishing these individuals that are clicking on these links, and it's delivered through uh, shortened URLs as well as through email. So um, I take Twitter. it um, it's probably some spear phishing thing like, ooh, see these celebrity nudes naked. Yep. You've seen them in the news. Click yep. here. Yep, that's exactly right. And, and we kind of talked about this earlier with it being an issue, uh, especially in the enterprise environment, because you could have users that have an email. They're clicking on this. You may not have the signature files updated or whatever the case is. And now, you know, we're not getting any alerting uh, capabilities. Based so on all you security professionals out there, get ready to get those calls from your friends, family, about people clicking on it. Oh, man, I clicked on it. I got hacked. They stole something from me. Get ready for it. So um, I also want to report on some other things. I have a few more stories of the week for you guys. All right. Uh, Department of Energy um, actually published a new report. Um, they basically said that grid security is challenging, but it's progressing. It says the government and industry are actively developing the tools, resources necessary to develop robust cybersecurity practices within utilities. So that's industrial control systems, SCADA. It reports that 104 utilities covering 69 million customers have downloaded the Electricity Subsector Cybersecurity Capability Maturity Model, which helps the grid operators evaluate cybersecurity capabilities and prioritize future improvements. So this sounds like it's a packaged up vulnerability scanner that's deployed to the substation that allows you to rack and stack your um, priorities of vulnerabilities based upon their impact. Wow. But that's cool um, because typically that's a hot button button topic with a lot of people in the industry. You know, um, we've seen the blackouts that occurred in New York. I, I forgot what year was that. Was that uh Yeah, that was a while back and people had to walk across the bridges or some people just spent the night on the street, didn't they? A lot yeah. of people it was so it was so far away from their houses. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. So, you know, it can sp spiral us into a dismal oblivion if we don't have the power and I can't turn on my direct TV. So, that that's a big problem, right? Um, we need to make sure that uh, the grid is secured. So, another thing to report on is uh, Twitter. So Twitter now officially launched a, a bug bounty program. Um, I'm kind of a fan of Twitter uh, just because of the fact that they have a robust uh, computer emergency response team. And yeah, they kinda, I like Twitter as well. They, they kind of take you know security serious. So they uh, launched a program that rewards individuals that report vulnerabilities with a minimum payout of $140. Verified bugs found on Twitter.com and subdomains, as well as its iOS and Android apps, are eligible for cash. Um, the common examples include, you know, things that we see every day, cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery, remote code execution, and unauthorized access to protected tweets, and unauthorized access to DMs and so on. So those are the direct messages that happen on the back end of Twitter. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, so that's free money for all uh, the hackers out there yeah, or the, all the interns our, that need uh, money, right? Yeah, yeah. You can definitely, uh, you know get on here and, and kind of look for some bugs and get paid for it um, while doing that. So it's really cool. Another cool story. Um, trying to fill you guys with a lot of stories this week. I had a lot going on uh, in the cybersecurity arena. So Duke, um, their health system announces that there was a July 1st patient breach. So Duke announced that on July 1st, it experienced a patient data breach as a result of an unencrypted thumb drive being stolen from an admin building. Um, the thumb drive contained patient names, medical records, and physician names. Yikes. <laughs> I know. This is bad. Uh, an unknown number of patients were affected who were treated in the Duke Children's Health Center and Lenox Baker Children's Hospital from December 2013 to June 2014. However, 
you know, with HIPAA and all of that data that's that we think is protected, that we trust with our healthcare providers, is out there um, and it is vulnerable. We're, we're really depending upon them to protect the data, and depending upon regulations to enforce protections on that data. But I kind of look at this as Duke is taking a step forward in transparency for their medical program. Good for them. And, uh, you know, they're actually making us aware that uh, this patient breach, patient data breach did occur. And, you know, we can change what we're doing on our end um, as, uh, you know, net defenders, security professionals, security practitioners to kind of look at HIPAA. I think HIPAA needs a lot of help right now. Um, Everybody involved in the HIPAA community. So or that are using uh, HIPAA as guidelines um, with the data that they're saving and storing. So another cool story is uh, five San Diego Bartel hotel locations fall victim to payment card theft. So Bartel Hotels um, is notifying customers that its payment system at five San Diego locations were compromised, which allowed the theft of credit card data. The affected locations are Best Western um, plus Island Palms Hotel and Marina, the Dana on Mission Bay and the Humphreys Half Moon Inn and Suites, Pacific Terrace Hotel. We'll post more details um, on the uh, on the show notes on our website. But the breach took place from February 16th to May 2013. So this was the actual um, payment card information that was stored. So let's see. I'm pulling up an update now. All right. So... In a follow-up statement, um, so SC Magazine actually put this out. Names and credit card numbers were exposed. The root of the problem had been addressed and remediated, um, and the impacted individuals are being offered credit monitoring and identity protection services. That's good, because that was my next question. Um, What's being done to mitigate the risk and to make the customers right, make them feel happy? Make sure they're safe. Make sure they can visit so here's, um, here's the space the, again. Here's the kicker, right? Um, if you paid in cash, you're safe, obviously. Right. right? Your numbers aren't compromised. But um, th- on a follow-up statement that was emailed to SC Magazine on Thursday, Rich Bartell, the CEO of Bartell Hotels, wrote that the potential number of affected customers is estimated to be between 40,000 and 45,000. Bartell wrote that the expiration dates may have been compromised as well, but they have begun the process of notifying those whose information may have been affected, and uh, it includes delivering written notifications to 16,432 individuals for whom they have mailing addresses. That, to me, is kind of scary for those that they have mailing addresses. Yeah, what about the other people that they don't? And hopefully uh, the hotel chain has uh, told the financial institutions um, you know, such as Visa, MasterCard, Discover, um, all of the, all of the bank chains. I agree. And to segue off of the um, off of the breach at the hotels, there was actually a, a recent breach at Home Depot. So the I haven't seen any official report um, come out, but uh, in a preliminary analysis uh, performed by Krebs uh, Krebs on Security, basically the Breach may have affected all 2,200 Home Depot stores. And this is in the wake of Target, Super Value, PF Chang's, and Goodwill um, being hacked. And they, the CEO came online and stated that cybersecurity is a major issue, which is kind of funny because um, we all know that. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's about taking, taking a step forward and making things more secure and not just looking at the bottom line. Um, and Home Depot said on Wednesday that it hired security firm Symantec and Fishnet Security to do an investigation on uh, the possible hacking that occurred. The Home Depot breach was first reported by uh, Krebs on Security, and the Home Depot stores, the stolen credit cards, it's all payment card information, and uh, Blake said that he is going to be told investors that Home Depot will be activating chip-enabled checkout terminals at all of its stores by oh, the end of the awesome. year. Oh, that's awesome. So I think that's the first store I've heard that's going to be doing that. So they're going to be doing chip and pin, um, which is cool. PCI DSS definitely needs to be revamped yes. to <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, include that. And I think more uh, vendors at their brick-and-mortar storefront should accept that as a payment method. And Passbook and some other things, right, that, are, that enable um, convenience 
kind of give I know when I go to Starbucks right I scan a QR code I don't swipe a card which is pretty cool. yeah that's cool um, so anyway I thought that was pretty cool to report on and that kind of wraps up our stories of the week and now we're going to uh, get into our CIO corner segment and um, in this uh, portion of the show what we like to do is bring individuals from the industry uh, here in studio and and whether they're a small business owner large business owner uh, they're CIO CISOs and kind of get some of the issues that they're facing in their respective fields and uh, just provide some insight on that, you know, and, and just have a technical uh, exchange between us. And today we have one of our premier sponsors in the house, in the studio, and that would be VicTech. We have Vic from VicTech in the house. What's up, Vic? Hey, guys. How are you doing? Good, You're man. Doing well. What's going on with you? Just hanging in there. So, um, Vic, there's, you know, there's, a, there's definitely uh, issues facing all clients, right, in information security, whether that be in the baking industry, whether that be um, Home Depot, right, in the commercial industry. So what do you see um, with your clients? What We kind of provided an intro as to what VicTech does um, with our, our uh, short introduction at the beginning of the show. But can you elaborate as far as what services VicTech provides? VicTech was uh, founded in 2008. We support uh, federal and private sector customers. Um, we do uh, information assurance, network engineering, network support. Um, so you, you cover the whole gamut of things, whether that be um, installing the system there at the user's desk, all the way up to securing servers that are back in the back in the rack in the server room. Yeah, we're full service. Uh, everything from desktop to router to cloud. To, to securing the environment. So you mentioned cloud. That's actually uh, that's actually a hot button topic here in the industry. Uh, what is your take on cloud? Um, have you seen customers adopting cloud? Do you see any of the uh, of the issues related to cloud? Yeah, uh, cloud is definitely a good solution, but um, you know it's a very it's still a new technology. So there are some issues evolving. Um, Client customer issues. One of them, I would say, would be endpoint security. Yeah. So if we get into a cloud environment, which is kind of giving the vendor uh, some of that control, like you said, I think the uh, the client definitely loses sight that hey, your endpoint could be unsecure. Um, you could have patches out of date. You could have um, software packages installed that you know aren't approved um, within the enterprise environment. Um, do you tackle that through normal the vulnerability assessment or do you kind of tailor it per customer? Well, I think our biggest challenge is trying to get the customer to understand the the nature of securing their environment. That's probably the biggest hurdle. Once you tear down those walls and you explain it to them, then you know they're open to feedback. So you know and that that kind of leads into the next, issue that I would say like compliance that's that's a big uh, so standardizing compliance is is kind of the hot button topic are you are you seeing issues with that in your client space yes so some environments need lots of work some environments need little work but you know trying to get everybody on board to bring their systems their environment up to to, to code you know using the the tools in the industry is definitely a challenge and there's you know it's not a one-size-fits-all approach a lot of people um, especially me as a you know in, in roles as a vulnerability assessor penetration tester when I come in on an engagement typically the customer will say okay do whatever you have to do run your pen test run your vulnerability assessment print me out some type of executive summary and then leave and that not only that not always works because it doesn't really emphasize the risk in the environment. Do you see that as well where you're at? So that's that's definitely a good uh, point you bring up, Matt. Because a lot of times we'll run the reports, we'll you know give a summary, and then we leave it in the decision makers, and they don't really understand what they just what the details are and what yep. they need to do. So accepting the risk is definitely something that needs to be uh, taken into account and the key decision makers really need to be kept apprised of uh, the different components and the different aspects that go around um, doing that. So 
one of those things that we see um, a lot of customers, we're hearing a lot of Google, a lot of AWS, right? Um, a lot of Swift, OpenStack, which is our, our cloud environment. So what do you see in the client space as being an issue? Uh, I think there's some nervousness into moving into the cloud. Uh, it all depends on the customer. It depends on what types of security they're looking to achieve, what kind of services they're, or benefits they're looking from a cloud computing environment. Um, it, you kind of have to present them with you know, what, what it is they're looking for and then explain to them what the risks and challenges may be in, in cloud environments. So migrating to cloud environments, there's a lot of, um, you know, they, they need surety in making the decision. But the problem is with cloud environments is we're letting the vendor um, take a lot of those controls um, and, and basically take those in, accept the risk on behalf of the customer. And there are times where the customer doesn't know what they're signing off That's on. That's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. That just that leads to failure. Um, we saw a couple issues uh, earlier in the year, um, Codespace and Popvote, yep. um, with, with kind of using cloud, um, adopting, you know, those those cloud environments, using them, migrating things out to there, basing their whole business model off of the cloud environment, and then next thing you know, um, they don't—they're not fully aware of what's happening, and uh, they're they, out of business. They're out of business. They get hacked. Um, so migrating to cloud environments definitely is a, a good topic that you bring up, and that's something I see in, in my industry as well. So, um, what's—I mean, uh, another thing that kind of segues into is responsibilities and risk. What do you see in your environment with that? Well. Let's see, vendor responsibilities, um, service level agreements, you know, what, uh, in, in some respects, you really got to understand what it is you're getting into. So uh, a lot of times from the articles I read, it seems like it isn't until after a breach occurs that some of the, the, the vendor and the company understand what they actually signed. And, and then they decide to kick it into action it costs them a lot more money bringing somebody to take care of that issue than if they were to address the issue through compliance and security architecture and design early in the phase. And on. if they haven't already lost their business over something like that. Absolutely. So, I mean, these are some very good points. And, uh, you know, again, if there's anything we, we kind of have pulled from this segment here and pulled from this talk is security is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Whether that's entering an SLA with another vendor um, when uh, performing as a security engineer or consultant for the customer, you have to ensure that they understand the cards that are on the table before they decide to accept that risk and before something happens because at the end of the day, we're passionate about what we, what we do and we don't want to see breaches occur um, in those disparate uh, enterprise environments. And, and that's why I think these uh, talks are really good because I think you know, around the community we can bring a sense of awareness and I think that's probably our biggest challenge is, you know, bringing that uh, to um, so everybody has a good understanding of what it is we need to tackle. Having a centralized place to pull information that's vendor agnostic, um, that we're able to uh, listen on Friday and apply on Monday, right? That's, that's a huge thing. So um, what I want to kind of transition into is uh, a little portion of the segment uh, we like to call... Um, I'll actually let Nick do this one because he, he looks pretty excited over there. So go ahead, Nick. <laughs> so this is something we came up with uh, uh, just for fun to ask um, our guests to come on the show, and that's six questions with InfoSec Sync. Kind of to loosen it up. Six mm -hmm. questions. So are, are you ready for the questions, Are Vic? you ready, Vic? Yes. All right. Let's fire off. First question. What is your favorite color? I would say blue. So that was a, a prepper question. Uh, the questions get better as we go on, but this is just to prep them. So what's the next question? Vic, what is your favorite technology? My favorite technology? What, what could you not live without? I would say my phone. Mm. That, that's I get everything done with the phone, every, from appointments to my time, my phone calls, even the Internet. The laptop will be a close second, right? That, that it would be true. Speaking yeah. of laptop... Windows or Linux? Number three. Windows. Wind blows. Oh, wind blows. Come on, man. But uh, <laughs> have you used eight lately? Windows eight? Or are you still on seven? 
Well, unfortunately, I went with a Mac. <laughs> so so, so you're trying a, to adopt was... it with the Microsoft software <laughs> inside of the Mac. So he's he's a Linux guy at heart because <laughs> at the basis of every Mac is a command line, right? Yeah, that's a, right. A that, that is true. So. So. All right. Well, well, we'll let you go away on that one. I'm, I'm just going to say that... Uh, He's a Linux guy. All right, so you said your phone was your favorite technology. So based on this next question, we're going to find out what kind of phone you have. So number four, iOS or Android? Android. Droid. Droid. So you're you're a droid guy, huh? Yeah, I've always been a fan of the Motorola phones for some reason, and obviously they... So the Razors, their original droid back in the day. Yeah, right. Okay. Yep. All right. Hey, so I've been loyal to them. I, I may awesome. I may go uh, with the iPhone when maybe when the newer one comes out. I don't know, but that's our iPhone six. I think we may have a spare segment for you listeners out there. Uh, we may jump into a tech segment. Who knows? Uh, it depends if we have some time here at the end of the show. But we'll definitely be talking about that new uh, that new new. So. so Vic, name something techy that you could not live without. Something techy that I can't live without. Um, this kind of goes off the work question, but this is like life in general. Something techy, Fitbit. Who knows? What is it? Bluetooth oh. in the car. Oh, that was good. awesome. I'm a multitasker. It's so, so convenient, right? It's convenient. I, I I'm a multitasker. I like to be able to talk and drive and. Be, you know, I've been known to uh, be on my Bluetooth headset and clean out the garage. That's that's who I am. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, okay, and number six, the last question, Vic. If you were stranded in the middle of a client space during a vulnerability assessment or a penetration test, which of these items would you bring and why? A USB stick, a laptop, or a cell phone? Pick one. You can only pick one. I would ne- say network access la- isn't isn't uh, or internet access isn't an option on here. By the way, <laughs> internet access is not an it's option. not an option. So you're you're at the mercy of uh, of your customer. So out of those, which uh, which would you pick? Middle of a client space, doing a pen test. Which my one? laptop. The laptop. Okay. Why the laptop? Well, the laptop. You can. I mean, it can be used in many different ways. Uh, USB and uh, cell phone are kind of limited in what what you can do with the with those, right? Interesting. Absolutely. However, um, at ShmooCon in January, um, they did have a presentation. Uh, this may sway your decision. The presentation basically uh, stated how you can unlock USB sticks because of the uh, wafer design now of the USBs and um, being able to put a whole OS, not just live OS, but it uses the native hardware and you're able to use the client's computer just like a laptop. But I guess I can see the portability, right? How that comes into play. You're able to do things on the fly, kind of go into the, the, the data center, right? Look for layer two attacks creeping around come in, exploit them, then leave without a trace. It's a little more tangible. I would call it my security blanket. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, well that kind of wraps up our uh, our segment here for uh, CIO Corner. Hopefully, you guys got something out of that. Um, again, this is something that's going to be persistent across uh, all of our podcasts. Vic, we'd like to thank you for coming out, and we'd also like to thank you for uh, your support starting up our uh, first podcast. Absolutely. I think uh, I think next time we're gonna definitely have to have some food provided here too. Uh, oh come I, on! Don't don't rag on us, I, I right? Think, I think we're all pretty hungry, right? Here in the studio <laughs> right now, right? We have water and popcorn. That's about it. Um, but you know, that's all you need. It's it's the life of a pen tester here, right? <laughs> all right, Vic from Vic Tech. Thanks again, man. Yeah, all thanks, right. Vic. Appreciate it. That Vic was something else. Oh, so, man, I, I, I love me some Vic. <laughs> I know, man. That's the end of our CIO corner. Uh, everybody loves them some Vic. If uh, you need to hit him up, uh, he's there at uh, VicTech.net. Right? And, you know, Vic did make uh, some good points about migrating his customers to the cloud environment because some of those customers don't know what they have, don't know the risk involved, and don't really know what cloud is. They know the buzzwords but they don't know what's involved with the cloud. Nick, that's, that's a great point. So um, just to kind of go off of that and segue off of that, um, basically the vernacular with cloud 
is colluded, right? We have a million different things that are going on. The two distinct schools of thoughts are big data analytics, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service. All the buzzwords. All the buzzwords, right? Um, but there again, what does that equate to from a, a risk perspective um, in the vendor space? And you know that question has yet to be answered. However, um, we can take a good step forward uh, as security practitioners with uh, getting smart um, with the cloud technologies. So. What I like to do is kind of an impromptu segment, um, a cloud segment, just to talk about some of the key points um, that Vic hit on while he was doing uh, while he was doing his thing here and uh, giving us a little bit of his time. But uh, one of the things was uh, migrating to a cloud environment. Right. You know. So when a customer um, decides to bite the bullet, um, they got the CEO breathing down their necks. They want to be a grain company. They want to reduce the power space cooling footprint in the data center. So what do they do, right? They turn to the vendor. They say, okay, we need cloud and we need it now, <laughs> now right? Like yesterday. So um, one of those things uh, is migrating things that are brick and mortar or whether they're, you know, uh, in the VMware piece, right, sitting on an ESXi host there in the data center or whether it's a Citrix piece, right, sitting in the data center. Either way, you need to get that into a public cloud environment or a private cloud environment where you're paying somebody to come in and uh, actually provision the cloud environment for you for your own private use within the organization. And that's another thing, Matt. Um, some of the clients um, don't know the difference between having virtual instances yep. and the cloud. Yeah, so basically with virtual instances that are out there and virtual machines, right, with virtual machines, we kind of earmark that as being a an instance or a machine that's out there in a virtual state that's using um, the host CPU, using the host RAM, and using the host network. And in that case, you have multiple VMs residing on that same piece of hardware, that pizza box that's back in the data center. With cloud, you're having a cloud instance that's out there or a presence in a cloud environment, whether that be a hybrid, um, a hybrid public private cloud instance. And you still are using those same main concepts, but most of the responsibilities and most of the risk is accepted by the vendor. So in this case, uh, we kind of see through infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service with those tiers um, and the different cloud deployment models, the vendor risk increases from IaaS all the way up to SaaS which is kind of like a, a Google instance, Vice, um, an Amazon AWS instance, uh, being IaaS or PaaS, or uh, you know vCloud, VMware's vCloud, which is um, kind of that infrastructure as a service model. That's a very good point, Matt. One of the things that Vic was talking about was accepting risk, and you know part of that accepting risk I think is uh, SLA agreements. What do you have to say about that? So uh, when entering agreement with a, a vendor for a cloud deployment, one of those things that you have to have uh, that's overarching is a service level agreement. Um, and looking at the vendor responsibility matrix as far as from a security control standpoint or from a business process standpoint, where are your risks going to lie? Exactly. Um, and what do you need to hold the vendor accountable for? Because until you cut that check, you have the opportunity um, to pretty much make the cloud deployment successful um, on, all, on all avenues. So SLAs are definitely up there in the top 10 list when entering that. And uh, this is where the business owner needs to know about what they have, what their risk is, and do they want to transfer the risk or they do they want to accept the risk? Exactly. So Matt, is compliance part of the SLA process? So compliance from an instance standpoint wouldn't be part of the SLA agreement that you would enter with the vendor. However, um, the endpoints that are out there, you want to standardize compliance with each of those endpoints, each of those points of presence into the business process. Um, that's all of the instances, uh, everything that's out there. 
And with standardizing compliance, you want to use something um, such as like a security center, right? Tenable security center, have that deployed out there, run some scheduled scans, pull back some reports, have your internal IA team secure those, uh, those deficiencies across the enterprise environment. And you can also customize, uh, security center is a great tool. I love using it. You can kind of customize if you have PCI DSS compliance, if you have HIPAA compliance, right? You can put those overlays onto that. Um, but there are other open source tools that you can also use if you're a small business where you may not necessarily have the budgets um, that can cover kind of a, a standardized tool uh, such as Nessus. But either way, we'll list some of the helpful tools that we see in vulnerability assessments, penetration tests, compliance security, uh, endpoint compliance, um, and we'll post that there in the show notes. So we kind of covered in depth all of the points um, that, that Vic made when he was here. Very good points. Glad to have him on the show. And uh, do you think we have a little bit of time for a tech segment? I think we do. Okay. Um, some of the, I guess with our tech segment, what we're doing is going over some of the new tech that's coming out. Um, and some of the newer things, Nick, you was, was the new Android phone that's coming out? Yeah, so uh, Samsung announced their Note 4, um, which I was kind of excited about because I'm torn between the Note 4 and the new iPhone 6 that's also going to be coming out. But you were able to see uh, Samsung's uh, new 2K resolution, which is 2560 by 1440 pixels. Um, It also has a 16 megapixel camera. It's got a better battery. It also has 32 gigs of internal storage, but they give you an option to expand it, I think to a 64 gig. Um, The processor is pretty fast. It's a 2.7 gigahertz Qualcomm Snapdragon 805. It's gonna be released in October. But the cool thing about the phone is another piece that you can purchase that they haven't released yet. It's the virtual reality headset. Yeah, um, I looked at that. That looked pretty awesome. So, uh, can, you, can you go into more detail about that thing? Um, I may be switching from iPhone to Android, by the way, yeah, just because so of this one feature. It looks really cool. So um, the phone goes into the headset. The headset straps to your head. It looks kind of funny, but, you know, there's no other way for it to work. <laughs> and, like, you look like Cyclops, right? Yeah. Uh, they teamed up with Marvel for some apps. Um, you could probably watch movies on it. And, of course, it's got virtual reality. So you move your head up, you look up, you move your head down, you turn around. It all moves with you in virtual reality. So that might be the next step in VR. So um, you kind of mentioned its rival, per se. Uh, this is kind of the uh, what's accredited to the increase, the steady increase of Apple stock. Uh, here over the the past month or so, uh, it is the Apple iPhone six. Yes. So uh, this is actually going to be a pretty cool phone. Um, for the first time, they're going to actually uh, release a 128 gig model in the product line. About time. Uh, yeah, about time. But remember, we talked about the iCloud issue. It only comes with five That's right. uh, off the shelf. So right. that could be quite a bit of money if you're an avid iPhone user um, and you kind of uh, use up all the space on there. But either way, uh, there's going to be two models, a 4.7-inch model and a 5.5-inch model. Um, it's going to be a 960 by 1704 um, pixel uh, screen, uh, which is relatively yeah. good. It's I mean, right. It's going to be okay. They're going to have that 8-megapixel uh, um, autofocus, dual LED flash. Uh, the video is going to be 1080p at 60 feet per second. This is not something that you know we haven't seen before released by Apple. It's actually going to have iOS 8 um, on it, which will be pretty interesting. Uh, it continues on with that uh, Apple A8 uh, chipset and a dual core 2 gigahertz uh, CPU. It's going to come with the accelerometer, gyro, proximity, compass sensors, um, all of the, the regular things that we see. I think um, it's also, this is uh, worth noting, it's going to have the non-removable um, 1810 milliamp hour battery, uh, which, you know, it, for an iPhone, for them to release uh, two screen sizes in the same product line, uh, that's pretty crazy. It, it'll be interesting to see how this, uh, how this rolls out and unfolds. So, Matt, I remember hearing something really cool about that new phone is um, the ear pods that they're coming out with. So supposedly you're going to be able to um, 
put them in like you're listening to music and like when you're running on the treadmill or you're at the gym or whatever it's going to be able to um i think take uh uh your pulse yeah and so some other cool, i haven't actually cool seen anything through my official channels um about the earphones um what they're going to look like the ear pods the new ear pods that are coming out but you know, I, I would not put it past Apple to release something like that and, um, you know, have something that can be more integrated to your life. Remember, uh, Vic, when he came on, he loves his cell phone. Um, right. But he, he's an Android user, so I think he's going to get those Cyclops, Cyclops glasses and, and be rocking on with that. But um, another thing that's worth note, uh, let me bring this up here is that it's going to continue on that near field communication piece so um it's the 16 gig is going to be at the low end right Right, with one gig of ram support for nfc and a uh, quadcom lte modem that supports speeds of up to 150 megabytes per second so what i'm thinking is they're beefing it up um with lte in order to have uh in order to to increase those speeds so Keep on the lookout. It's going to be really awesome. We're going to actually take a break and come back and close out the show. And now to close out the show, again, uh, thank you to all of our vendors, Van Dyke Technology Group. And, yeah, thanks, uh, guys. Vic Tech. Um, be sure to visit their websites. Check them out. They're, they're worth checking out. Really cool, uh, really cool companies out there. And uh, what's that music I hear, Nick? That music is We Are Closing Out. So stay tuned next week when we're going to have more security news and more guests. All right, guys. See you next time.